Welcome to episode 20 of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. Today I have Dr. Jim Grinius with me again as co-host. Jim is a professor of chemistry at Rowan University and he did his graduate work with Jim Jorgensen at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, finishing there in 2014. In 2017, he started his faculty position at Rowan University where he His research group focuses on a variety of aspects in separation science, including capillary chromatography, various aspects of uh, band broadening and method development in LC, low-cost instrument design, and microfluidics. So thanks again, uh, Jim, for joining us today. No, thanks, Joy. I had a lot of fun last time. Excited to be back again today and have some more good conversations about separation science. Sounds good. So Jim and I were just at the Eastern Analytical Symposium in Princeton, New Jersey last month, and I thought we could just take a couple minutes to sort of reflect on what we saw at the meeting this year. So what were your general impressions and, and main takeaways from the meeting this year, Jim? Uh, I think that it was, it felt like we're back, you know, it felt like the, the Eastern Analytical Symposiums of old. It was the first meeting I think I've been to that, that really was a sort of a 2019 and before feeling. So I liked that uh, piece of it. Um, congratulations to the award winners, uh, Bob Kennedy for Analytical Chemistry, Mary Worth for Separation Science, Emanuela uh, Gianfrido for uh, young investigator. Dwight, you had a student win a student award, so congrats to that, and congrats to one of my students for that. But um, I think the big thing with analytical meetings that we always, as uh, chromatographers, have a challenge, why do they always put the separation science sessions at the same time? makes it really tough. Um, I don't have a good answer, so I'm not complaining, right? I don't, I don't have the magic wand to fix it, but um, I think that's something, you know, as conference planners move forward, how do we organize things in this little shell game so that you know, separations folks can get to as many talks as, as possible. But overall, a great meeting. The social program uh, kept us late some of the nights, but uh, overall, a good meeting. So, Great. So uh, I guess you have to be careful where you wish for. You might be getting an email <laughs> asking you to join the conference <laughs> committee now. <laughs> but no, I, I, I agree. I was I was uh, kind of struck by a couple of the sessions I went. I was in were kind of standing room only, I mean, which is a good problem to have really really great attendance in some of the talks. So I agree it was um, felt felt like we're maybe turn the corner and uh, towards a to, uh, sort of a new normal there. So I agree. All right, so uh, today we have the pleasure of speaking with our guest, Dr. Heather Bean. Heather is Associate Professor of Biomedicine and Biotechnology in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. She holds undergraduate and PhD degrees in chemistry, both from the Georgia Institute of Technology, where her dissertation work was focused on prebiotic synthesis of nucleic acids under the direction of Dr. Nicholas Hudd. Following the PhD, Heather held postdoctoral researcher positions at Texas A&M, the University of Vermont, and Dartmouth College before starting the faculty position she holds now at ASU. Heather is an expert in volatilomics, which is a study of all volatile organic compounds produced by a biological system, at least as I understand it. And many of her recent papers have been focused on the volatilomes of microbes of various types relevant to application areas ranging from condition known as valley fever to cystic fibrosis, some of which we're going to talk about today. And she has a very well-funded research program with current grants from multiple organizations, but two of the larger ones are from the National Institutes of Health, focused on the methicillin-resistant uh, Staphylococcus aureus and also DARPA. 
And I found, uh, just browsing your CV, Heather, I found the DARPA project particularly intriguing with its focus on integrated fatigue analysis and prediction using analysis of breath mm-hmm. and wearable sensors reference to neurophysiological fatigue indices. So did I get all that right so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pronunciation is perfect and the details are great. Okay. I want to throw in real quick as well. I saw that you won uh, the best oral presentation at an ISCC meeting, and I was a grad student, I think, one of the years you were there, and I, I, I think that this is something that back in the day that it was kind of like a middle school dance. All the GC folks would be on one side, all the sort of capillary liquid chromatography people would be on the other side, so it's great to have the, the communities coming together here yeah. for this podcast. So. <laughs> that was such a long time ago. I had to think back. I didn't even remember that happening. <laughs> All right, great. So now one of my favorite parts of these interviews uh, is talking with our guests about the origins of their interest in science and analytical chemistry and separation science specifically. So I think um, it's, I think for young people in the high school and college ages, hearing from real people about their interest stories, I think are really impactful. So um, I like to, I always ask this of people. So how did you get started? What excites you uh, about the work? And so, Heather, are there specific events or influences that you would say really fueled your interest in, in science in general? Um, well, I wanted to say a quick thanks to Dwight and Jim for having me on. Um, but um, I don't think there was a specific event that got me interested in science. I, I think um, many people have heard this adage that every kid is a natural-born scientist. And... Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I feel like I was, and my household was just very uh, conducive to that. My um, dad had bought us a telescope when we were little, and we had a microscope, and we looked at the, you know, a flea that my dad picked off of our dog under the microscope, and it was just fascinating. Um, And for either a Christmas or a birthday, I got like this massive chemistry set. So I must have just been into it ever since I was really young. And the environment in my house just reinforced that. Um, So yeah, I've I've been a a scientist since I was little. Okay. Yeah, fascinating. I think uh, it's just so interesting to hear all the sort of diverse uh, experiences. Every, Every person's Background and path is a little bit different and really Mm -hmm. just fascinating to hear about them. Uh, So what about your interest in analytical chemistry and and also maybe separation science more specifically? So kind of what do you point to in terms of when those interests develop? My first uh, exposure to separations, I'm sure it was in like middle school or high school where you do that, you know, very standard chromatography experiment where you put some ink on paper and you separate the colors. Uh, But that was the only thing I knew about separations until I got to college. Um, And at Georgia Tech, we had a really good um, undergrad curricula and a lot of opportunity to do hands-on work and analysis with good instrumentation. And I think my first um, really robust experience with separations probably actually came in my organic chemistry lab where we were doing syntheses, but um, we were also doing separations and we used GCMS and NMR and other analytical techniques to evaluate the work that we had done in that organic chemistry lab. Um, 
as an example, the my favorite experiment in that lab was we were given an essential oil of a known character in the Merck manual. And we had to figure out what that essential oil was, how many components it had. We had to distill out the most abundant terpene from that essential oil. And then we had to identify it chemically using GC mass spec and NMR um, and boiling point and other um, uh, non-separations based, you know, physical chemistry uh, attributes. And I loved it. Everything about it was amazing. And just being able to like inject our own sample into a GC mass spec and get the data off of that and then ponder over it for weeks, I felt like we were, <laughs> we were looking at all that data. Um, that was my first real exposure to analytical chemistry as a modern tool. And um, I just, I just loved it. Um, and then when I finished my undergrad degree, I went and worked at Merck Pharmaceuticals for three years at a manufacturing facility. And I was working in a, a quality assurance lab. And my job for three years was analyzing the either the finished product or the end process uh, manufacturing products that were being generated. And for two of those three years, I was just in a room for, full of HPLCs that were running all the time. Um, so I, I got really good at it um, and uh, got to learn a lot in that job on about separations as far as LC mass spec goes. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah. Um... Again, just uh, really interesting to hear how different the paths are. So thanks for sharing those stories. So now let's uh, jump into the science you're working on today or in recent years um, in our communication about the, in, in preparation for the interview here, you identified a few recent papers and research topics that we could discuss. And so we're gonna dive into those a bit. And just as a reminder to our listeners, we'll post the citations to the articles we're discussing here in the next few minutes in the show notes. So. Folks that want to follow up and, and look into these uh, in more detail can can find those links there. So, having said all that, um, Jim's going to kick off the the first conversation here about one of the papers. Thanks, Dwight. Thanks, Dwight. And it was great. Heather it was great hearing about kind of your your background and how you got into separation science. And you know, I think you're really most well known for all your work in in GCGC, and you've extended into a wide variety of areas, but you're still a fundamental chromatographer, you know, at your core. I, I like that. And so one of your recent papers focused on the analysis of, of metabolomics data and, and really this idea of, of missingness, which was a, a statistical term I hadn't really, uh, you know, come across before, but it's what happens when you don't observe a value. And I guess for analytical chemists, probably primarily an analytical peak. Um, and so you say this could happen for as many in the paper, as many as 80%, you know, plus of the features. And so what are the causes of this missingness? Is it limits on current analytical technology, the complexity of biological samples or somewhere in between. Uh, what is, what is missing this? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of all of the above. Um, so as you said, Jim, missing this is whenever you don't observe a value in a sample. And if you're only analyzing one sample, um, it, there could be an infinite number of things that are missing. Um, but when in most of our analyses, we're looking at lots of different samples and we're trying to compare them to each each other and we ponder when a particular chemical feature or a peak in the chromatogram is missing from our peak table um, for one sample but it's present in others well is that really missing was it really not in that sample or did we fail to detect it or um, could it be um, 
just a, a complete uh, random event, like it was there, it could be detected, but the software didn't integrate that peak well. There are myriad reasons why that, that feature might be missing from that data table. Um, it can be as simple as where did you set your signal to noise threshold cutoff to populate your peak table from all of your raw data. So we try to, um, we want to know if, if something that, if we're concerned of some about a particular chemical feature potentially being a biomarker, and maybe that biomarker um, is meaningful in presence versus absence. We really want to, to know and be assured that absent means absent or at least undetected, is reliably undetected versus if we were to switch to a different system, would we suddenly now see that feature? Um, whereas on our system, we don't. Um, but we also just want to deal with noise. Whenever we're doing statistical analyses on the back end of gathering our data, if there's a bunch of just random reasons that that features are missing from the data table, it just makes the data noisy and it makes it harder to do the statistics and do machine learning to I, to figure out what is truly meaningful in these samples. So there's there's some technical terms about missing at random, missing not at random, but the the real um, thing to think about is we we want to have some sense of um, when we have a missing value, can we get a sense for whether that is missing just by chance? And if we were to analyze the samples again and in a different way, we would see it? Or is it missing because it's in low abundance um, or because it's just not there? Um, and so there are some statistical tools that can be applied to your uh, sample, to your data tables to try to understand the underlying root of the missingness. And then the reason that we bother with that is that that then influences what sort of statistical analyses we do as the next step. So we need to understand the the quality of our data before we then start to try to put it into to, to other models to understand it. Um, so in that paper that you're referencing, we, we, we largely pulled um, from some some tools that are already available on the internet and uh, applied them to our two-dimensional gas chromatography data um, to see if we could understand that the, the reasons and the ways that our data might be missing, but more importantly to me, how we can correct those missing values and, and to be able to move forward. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so it looks like kind of some of the things that came out of this was a software package using R, which I love because I'm a big open source guy, so that's, that's really great, but called uh, Metabimpute. So yeah. what is this really providing to the metabolomus community, you know? And, and I guess you took it from a 2D GC approach, but, you know, we're LC folks over here. So, yeah. you know, can you use that same package for potentially doing, you know, 2D LC characterization metabolomics as well? Does it work broadly for, for the data set? Yeah, the... Um, the at least the um, processes are interoperable. Um, and I, you've asked me a really good question. I can't remember what the input source format needed to be, um, it, but it, sh it should work on data formats other than just what comes off of our specific instrument that we use. Um, so the this R package, we utilize some tools that were already available in R, so we point to some other R packages that allow you to assess the type of missingness in your data. Uh, and it gives you back some charts and reports that kind of indicate that um, 
and it also has built into it some tools to replace those missing values. So before we do downstream analyses, we, we want to, first, a lot of times we can't just have blank data cells as inputs in our spreadsheets. We have to at least like maybe replace them with zeros. And that's a very common thing that people do. If they don't detect something, they just put that a zero in that empty cell. But that zero is information. Um, and it will carry information into your model. Um, so you might want to consider replacing that missing empty value with something like the half of the lowest detected value across your entire data set. And that's called a half minimum. So there's there are all these existing ways of replacing missing values, and we just sort of package them all into a single R package. You could select lots of different mechanisms. You can use machine learning to replace missing values and kind of a, a learning algorithm uh, mechanism for that. Um, but what we really made as completely new for this data package is this uh, idea of re using replicate samples to help inform how to replace that missing value. Not, we don't always have replicate samples, but as analytical chemists, we love having technical or biological replicates uh, in our analyses. And so whenever we have samples, um, that can be divided into technical replicates, we do take that approach. Um, and what we have found is if we have, for instance, three technical replicates of a sample, we might have a value for a particular VOC that's in, that we detect in two of those replicates, but it's missing in the third. We can use those two values that were detected to inform what that third missing value should be. So rather than just replacing that missing value with a zero or with half the minimum across any sample that we analyzed, we could take the approach to replace it with the uh, half of the minimum value between those replicates. So that we are taking more, we're using some of the biological and chemical information in other instances of that sample to inform how to replace that missing value. So that's what we bundled into this package is an automated tool that helps you do replicate-based imputation. Um, and we don't just do uh, half-min imputation like I was describing. You could apply a machine learning tool like random forest analysis to try to come up with what that missing value should be but rather than ignoring the fact that you have replicate samples, we've built in a tool to where the model can now take into account that you do have replicate samples to lean on, to gather information on while you're trying to figure out how to replace those missing values. So that's the tool that we built in that R package. Um, and one of the things that we have found is we have been applying this tool that, that we developed is that the noisiness in our data is significantly decreased and it's not just because we're replacing the one zero out of three technical replicates with a value. It seems like a lot of our noisiness comes in in our data where we detected a peak in only one of three replicates. So in two replicates there was no value and in one replicate there was a value. And so the way that we're often handling that is we say, we take a majority vote. If it wasn't detected in two samples, 
we're going to just call that value zero or half the minimum. We're going to get rid of that value in that one detected replicate. What, what constitutes a value in this case? Is it a retention yeah. time, a retention time, and a mass? You know, a value would be yeah. A value would be a peak area in peak our area. in our case. Yeah. So we've already aligned all of our data so that we have gotten rid of retention time variation, um, and the the value that we're looking at is a peak area. So for a, a at a particular retention time and mass spectrum, so we know that we're comparing the same chemical compound from sample to sample. In some cases, uh, two of three replicates didn't detect that feature. And in one of the three replicates, there's a, a, a peak area for that feature uh, in the data table. And it happens a lot. That is like one of our biggest cases of like noisiness and messiness in our data. And a lot of these values are like just skimming that signal to noise threshold cutoff that we applied to our data. And so by chance, one out of the three technical replicates, that value was just above the signal to noise threshold. It got put in the data table. Whereas for two of the three replicates, it didn't cross the signal to noise threshold. It got left out of the data table. And it happens so frequently that it just creates like a huge amount of just chemical information noise in our data sets that when we get rid of it, it makes our analyses so much better. Okay. Nice. This is uh, thinking about the reams and reams of data that you're generating. I mean, this is, you have to have a way to manage it. So I think this will be a really useful tool. So it's yeah, really yeah, I, yeah. You bring up something that um, we'll probably touch on again, but we do untargeted analyses. So we're, we're trying to look at everything that we can detect in our samples within reason. Um, we don't want uh, peak tables for a single sample that's 10,000 chemical features. That, that's just starting to venture down way into the noise more than signal. Um, but we want to be able to detect everything that, um, that we can, even if we have no idea what it is. And then we perform all of these analyses, compare samples one to another to see, do they have all the same things in it, the uh, of VOCs that we could detect. Um, and then we look for differences between sample classes. So our a lot of our challenges really arise from the fact that we're doing untargeted analyses and a lot of the data analysis tools in analytical science were developed for targeted analyses. Yeah. You're going in to measure some specific thing and you want to do it as sensitively as you can and uh, to as many decimal points on the mass spectrum. But uh, it's a completely different can of worms when you're doing untargeted analysis. These are these are good challenges, and it sounds like you know as data science continues to seep further and further into separation science, this is going to be you know something that will really help the the community. So that's, I think that's so, right. yeah. So I think you know maybe we'll switch over to some of the application works. So I'll turn it over to Dwight to kind of gear us in that direction. Yeah, so we want to shift gears a little bit and just to talk about some of the more application oriented work. Uh, a lot of which, of course, focuses on health related research. So. In one of your recent studies, um, you and your collaborators examined a series of clinical samples from a single cystic fibrosis patient over the course of a year to try and identify biomarkers that could be used to identify specific clinical disease states that it can mm -hmm. that can occur. So, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of that overall study, and then some of your specific work using GCGC to identify and measure these volatile metabolites in the in the context of that work? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Dwight. Um, so a lot of the research that I've done um, has been working with people who have cystic fibrosis. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has been funding me since I was a postdoc. Um, and they are very interested in non-invasive ways in order to monitor the, the lung infections that people with CF are susceptible to. Um, people with CF, they, they have a, an inborn error in a protein uh, that is very impactful in all their body systems, but it, it really impacts their lungs and makes them susceptible to lung infections. Um, and so we have been working in that domain in several different avenues over the past 15 years or so since um, I've been working in that field. Um, one is just, can we detect when someone has an infection in their lungs and know what's causing that infection? We want to know if it's a virus or if it's a bacteria. And if it's a bacteria, we want to know what kind of bacteria it is so that the right antibiotics can be prescribed. Um, but another aspect of, of our work is being able to monitor patients who are undergoing antibiotic treatment for their infections. Many people with CF end up with chronic lung infections that, that are no longer treatable. They can't be eradicated. They, at some point, their, their infection, uh, when they undergo an antibiotic treatment, it, the antibiotics just don't work to get rid of it. And so they will live with that infection, perhaps for the rest of their life. And they go through these disease cycles where that infection makes them sicker. And then they'll be in better periods of time where that infection isn't causing them so much trouble. But whenever they get sicker, they will uh, generally start on antibiotics to try to get that infection back under control and get their immune system um, in a less inflamed state so that they're feeling better and breathing better. And so this study that um, you're referring to was a collaboration with Andrea Hahn. She is a clinician in DC um, who works with people with CF um, and with Katrina Whiteson. And she is an analytical chemist uh, who's at UC Irvine. Um, and Andrea had... Um, been working with this patient who had this disease exacerbation. So this patient got much worse and needed to go on antibiotics. And Andrea's real interest is in studying the microbiome or the collection of microorganisms in these infections, because it's actually very rarely just one bacterium that's living in there. There's usually a whole community of bacteria. And um, so Andrea had collected sputum from this patient when they got sick. And sputum is just the mucus and all the gunk trapped in the mucus that a, a patient can cough up whenever they're sick and spit into a specimen cup. And um, she, Andrea, followed this patient over the period of a year while this patient was battling this exacerbation in their disease. So the patient... Um, had an exacerbation that often goes into the hospital when that occurs. Um, Andrea's collecting specimens from this patient when, when the patient is under exacerbation. Andrea uh, selects an antibiotic to put the patient on and treats them and then is collecting these sputum samples as they go. Um, and the patient gets better for a little bit and then they get sick again and treated with antibiotics again and they get a little better, get sick again. 
And what Andrea was seeing was that when she looked at the microbiome, when she just sequenced what was in there, that this patient kept having um, really the same microbial community every time that, that they were still like repeatedly getting sick. The, they would get treated with antibiotics, but then that microbial community would go right back to the way it was before it was treated with antibiotics. And then the patient would get sick again. Eventually at the end of this year, the patient got treated with antibiotics and the community shifted to something different, finally. And then that patient was better for the next 12 months. So what was seen in the microbiome data was that there was this, this community that was kind of recalcitrant and not shifting, um, not changing from exacerbation to exacerbation until the very last treatment. And then it was a new community and that patient was better. So what I did for that study was we're interested in, in being able to monitor as patients are being treated. So if we're in a scenario like this where a patient is repeatedly getting sick and, needs, and is being treated with antibiotics and, and those antibiotics don't really seem to be working, can we um, inform the clinician of that, that this antibiotic treatment really didn't help? It didn't change the community. Um, the patient is at high risk of exacerbation again. Could we tell something like that if we were to do like a breath analysis rather than trying to do sequencing of the sputum? Um, and so for this particular study, what we did is, is just took a little bit of the sputum that Andrea had collected and we looked at the VOCs from that sputum. And what we saw is that the pattern of the VOCs off of the sputum exactly mirrored what happened with the microbiome. There was this pattern of chemistry in that sputum sample uh, as far as the VOCs goes that um, would it would be altered temporarily during antibiotic treatment, just like the microbiome would be to some degree. They would shift around a little bit, but then off of the antibiotics, both the microbiome and the volatile profile went right back to the way it was um, before treatment. And then after that last treatment that worked, that made the patient better, we saw the VOC profile completely change. So that gave us an indication that um, there we could potentially substitute a VOC signature for microbiome sequencing to try to monitor patients as they're being treated for these really recalcitrant lung infections. And that's a, a direction that my lab has been really interested in is, is could we do breath analysis in order to study, to diagnose, to monitor the treatment of lung infections rather than having to do standard cultures or having to do sequencing because both of these techniques are dependent on a patient being able to cough something up from their lungs. And they're not just, they're just not always able to do that. But if we could substitute a breath sample that everybody would be able to deliver, uh, then that might help um, any limitations in sampling. So that little study was kind of our first proof of concept that we could substitute VOC analysis, at least in a sputum sample, for changes in the microbiome, and we're working to extend that into a breath analysis rather than a VOC analysis of something that was coughed up. Okay. Yeah, so reading reading that paper and looking at the volatile profiles, it was just 
incredible incredible to me how dramatically the chemistry of uh, the volatiles changes. I mean, these are not subtle at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And speaking of missing data, like that study, it was a real challenge because we had such small samples and a lot of missing data um, in our samples. Um, so we, in that paper, you'll see that we don't track individual volatile organic compounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when we tried to do that, the data were so, so noisy. So what we did is we collapsed everything into chemical classes. Right. They were, we just bunched together all the hydrocarbons. We bunched together all of the sulfur-containing compounds. Um, we bunched together all of the ethers. Um, and when we did that, suddenly there was some signal out of all of this noisy data where individual compounds were fluctuating too much, but entire chemical classes were trending very clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So now just um, thinking about the technique itself. So in terms of when, when you uh, get started on a new project like this, how much method development do you do these days? I mean... Um, I, I sort of think about multidimensional separations as there's there's people that really focus on the methodology and develop new, new tools, but then there's a time when we want to develop those tools or, or use those tools, apply yeah. those tools, right? So like in a case like this, how much development do you do? Is it just like, here's what we're going to use and we just press go? Yeah, so developing um, the, the method has never been my bag. I don't even like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much like such an applications focused person. Mm -hmm. I I've, I'm very hesitant to even call myself an analytical chemist sometimes because I'm just like I just like to use the tools. I don't want to like figure out how to make them work better. Um, so we we have found a few protocols that work for us mm -hmm. in all of the major domains of work that we do. Um, so for breath analysis. For, for breath analysis, we have a certain uh, collection protocol, injection protocol, you know, GCGC GC parameters, the column sets that we use. Um, we have our protocols if we're doing solid phase microextraction or if we're doing thin film microextraction. And those protocols pretty much always work for us. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago at this point, um, the, I was really unhappy with our peak shapes that we were getting in our samples. We were just really overloading the column and our peak shapes were really kind of garbage, um, which causes real problems when you're trying to integrate peak areas and, and even align chromatograms. And so I just turned to ResTech and uh, to Jack Cochran, who was there at the time before he retired, and asked him for help. And uh, he said, well, here's what you need to do. <laughs> you need to use a thicker uh, phase on your column. And so uh, we went from, I think, a 0.25 millimeter stationary phase to 1.4. Um, and it solved all our problems. And so I was like, you know, in the future, whenever I need to optimize any of this stuff, I'm just going to go right to the experts who do this day in and day out. And they will solve my problem in an instant rather than me spending months trying to optimize something on my own when I am just doing it by trial and error with no background knowledge and how to make it better. 
Yeah, I really like that point. We, we talk with our students a lot about networking, and this is exactly why one of the big reasons we do it, or at least for myself, it's like, yeah, you can save so much time by just having a pal that's a phone call away that is an expert in some other area that you don't know anything about. Yeah, yeah. And I, I presented that uh, improved chromatography at a meeting um, at ISCC, and um, I called it jacking my chromatography because Jack Cochran did it. And then so many other groups adopted the exact same column system that we use because they saw how good it was. And again, it was like, Jack solved the problem. We don't need to go and try to figure this out on our own. So the sharing that information also made a big difference. Cool. Well, thanks for the, the, the summary on what I'm sure has been a tremendous amount of work. It's really exciting to see real progress on, on a disease day like this has really been very difficult for a very long time. So, mm -hmm. uh, all right, Jim, back to you for the, for the third paper. Yeah, thank you. This, it's always tough to try and, you know, come up with real world examples besides kind of the standard, okay, we do this for, you know, maybe forensics, we do it for pharmaceuticals. You know, this is affecting real patients' lives directly with the work. So I think it, it's, it's really cool to see separations applied that way. And mm -hmm. I want to kind of extend it. So this, this is not the, CF is not the only disease you've sort of been studying to, to try and develop. And so maybe at a more fundamental level, you've been looking at valley fever and maybe trying to understand, you know, from some of the underlying, you know, like fungal infections that occur, what's the volatile metabolome look like there. So what got you into this area? We kind of heard about how you learned about a CF, but I'm guessing maybe there's some connection to, to being down in, you know, Arizona State. I'm not sure. So. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, when I interviewed at Arizona State, I talked about my research in the, in the context of cystic fibrosis and breath-based diagnostics for their lung infections. Um, and at the end of my, you know, research seminar during the Q&A, Doug Lake uh, raised his hand and he asked me, could you do this for valley fever? And I went, yes, what's valley fever? <laughs> I'd never heard of it. Uh, I'm from Georgia. I had spent my entire life on the East Coast except for one year, uh, one month, sorry, one year in Texas. Um, and I, so I'd never heard of it. And valley fever is what is called an endemic fungal pneumonia. We have uh, several of them in the U.S. Um, endemic uh, meaning that they are place-based and they are um, not spread throughout the entire world. So valley fever is a fungus that lives in the desert soils. You get exposed to it when you live in desert regions of the U.S. and it's really primarily Arizona and Southern California, though it extends up the, in, in the drier regions of the West Coast all the way up into Washington State and as far east as um, Western Texas. Um, and there are other endemic fungal pneumonias in the U.S., um, histoplasmosis, blastomycete, like I had never heard these words before <laughs> I got into this field. Uh, but Doug got me into studying valley fever when I took the job at ASU. Um, the, it, it made sense to do that research here. And the challenge with valley fever is that there's a couple interesting things about it. One is that most people, if you're healthy, you're not very susceptible to having fungal pneumonia. 
you're just it, people who get fungal pneumonias are often people who have um, underlying uh, immunosuppression. They might have cancer and they're on you know, cancer treatments. They might be on um, immunosuppressive therapies for rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. Um, but if you're healthy, you're generally not going to be susceptible. That's not the case with valley fever. Valley fever, you can get pneumonia with valley fever even if you're otherwise healthy. Um, so that's one interesting thing about it. Um, and then the other thing is that it's really hard to diagnose. For most people, the, it takes up to a month to get diagnosed with valley fever, and that's after going on at least one and sometimes two rounds of antibiotics because you go in with pneumonia, your doctor is going to give you some antibiotics to see if you get better, and you don't. So they'll treat you again and you still don't get better and then they will either finally eventually test you for valley fever or you might finally show up as being positive for valley fever. Um, so for this particular infection, the way you get diagnosed is they're you get measured, your immune response to the fungus gets measured. So it's measuring antibodies to the fungus. And that takes time. Your body takes some time to develop these antibodies against the infection. Um, and so it just takes a long time and people are suffering and they're miserable. So we need better diagnostics, period, for valley fever. So Doug got me into this. Um, and what we, there are lots of things we don't know about this fungus and about this disease. So one of the fundamental things about it is you don't pass it person to person. There is no such thing as an epidemic strain of valley fever. The only way that you're going to get this infection is if you inhale it from the dirt. So everybody has their own strain. Hmm. There is no human adapted epidemic strain of valley fever. Um, there are also two different species that cause the infection, and one is mostly based in California and the other is based in Arizona and in areas further east. So some of the fundamental things that we wanted to know before we developed a diagnostic is, is there a universal VOC profile for the, the fungus, and the name of the genus is coccidioides. Um, is there a, I know, I had to practice a lot saying these words. Um, so is there a universal VOC signature for any coccidioides infection, no matter if it's caused by the species imidis or the species posidaceae? And then on top of that, there's everybody has their own strain. So how much strain to strain variation is there in the VOC profile of this fungus? So we did um, just an initial study to look at the fungal VOC profiles across the two species and across six different strains of each species to see if there is a, a species breakdown in the VOC profile or so much strain strain variation that we might struggle. The good news is that it, it doesn't matter what species you have. Um, the VOC profiles made by the, species, the two species are quite similar. There are some nuanced differences, but overall they look very similar to each other. Um, so that gives us some inclination that we could develop a breath test 
that it doesn't matter if you got your infection in California or if you got it in Arizona, we'd still be able to recognize it as valley fever and know that it's not some other bacterial pneumonia that you might otherwise be treated for. Um, and those are the next steps that we're working on now. We're, we're getting ready to publish a paper um, that demonstrates that we can differentiate valley fever infections from bacterial pneumonias and other causes of pneumonia. Um, and that, and, and we're continuing to work on getting grant funding to do some breath analysis from hopefully several hundred patients to be able to really drive home the fact that we could develop a breath test for diagnosing valley fever that's uh, based on VOC profiles. Nice. And that kind of, I mean, that kind of leads to the last question I had for you, maybe, you know, try to kind of push the boundaries a little bit. Like, where is this going? And really, to me, you know, you think about clinical analysis, and some people say, okay, it's strictly, you know, let's keep it as simple as possible, spectroscopic. Okay, if we're going to do separations, there's a lot of like LCM, SMS, right, you know, for targeted things. But I think you've really talked today a lot about the power of GC and 2D GC for looking at like volatile metabolomics. And so, what's the end game potentially, you know, maybe thinking about this clinical study you're proposing, is it getting to a point where there's a, a 2D GC like in the clinic where someone is inhaling directly into an instrument or what, what's, you know, your vision for the future? Like where could this go? Yeah, I, I'm sure the uh, GC, GC manufacturers would love to see that day. <laughs> but I think realistically what is more likely to happen is we're using two-dimensional gas chromatography as a discovery tool. Um, it's, we're able to see many, many fold more VOCs on a GCGC from a breath sample than we can with GC mass spec. And it's just because there's only so much mass spectral deconvolution you can do on a GC mass spec before you just start losing peaks um, that are being obscured by others. <clears throat> so we use the 2D GC for discovery. Um, and it gives us really clean peak areas. We don't have a bunch of signal interference from co-elutions. Um, so it, it makes our, our work easier to discover those biomarkers. I think our first thoughts are that we could take, once we know what these VOC signatures are that are predictive of whether someone has valley fever versus some other kind of pneumonia, we can port that directly onto a GC mass spec with a targeted analysis. Once we know what compounds we're looking for, you can fish those signals out of a pretty messy GC mass spec. Um, and a lot of larger clinical labs have GC mass specs. So that would be the first stop on making this a, a broader, more utilized tool. And it's pretty easy to collect breath stamp samples and put them in the mail. We use uh, thermal desorption tubes to do that. So you wouldn't even have to have a patient right there with the instrument. You could collect the sample, send it to a centralized lab, and have it analyzed by GC mass spec. And um, it just really targeting in on the four, five, six VOCs that would be the diagnostic signatures between valley fever and, and some other condition. Um, in the future, clever chemists that have much more knowledge than I could certainly develop 
sensors that bespoke sensors that are tuned to the specific chemical compounds of interest um, and it could be more of a handheld or portable device but once you know what the chemical compounds are you can pick your favorite analytical tool you could do you know gcims you could do um, secondary electrospray ionization like whatever tool you want so long as you know what you're looking for you can pick those signals out of a pretty you know noisy background Nice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sure. All right. Great. So these uh, three conversations here about specific papers have been kind of deeper dives. Um, now what we want to do is, is switch gears a little bit and talk about some more kind of overarching ideas. And I think I think um, what my experience has been with these conversations, these interviews, is I think each of us as scientists has our uh, sort of wish lists or pet peeves about technology and so Jim has a first question for you about that yeah so I think metabolo I mean you're you're living proof but I think more and more people are going to start applying metabolomics for a really broad array of yeah. problems and so I think the number of best practices also needs to grow and I know in some of our earlier communications one of the things you said maybe that needs some improvement is sort of the the quality and, and maybe quantity as well of, of uh, spectral databases so what do you think is needed there to really improve the the positive identifications that can be made in these types of analysis yeah yeah um, so when we do our untargeted analyses um, even, you know, we'll have hundreds of samples and we'll align them and then we can take this unified peak table and search it against NIST. That's always our next step. NIST database, EI mass spectra to see if we can get some hits, some identities for these compounds that we've got in our peak tables. And it is very common that 70% of them don't have a high quality hit to the NIST database. Um, and I think there's two potential reasons for that. I mean, sometimes that peak is just noisy, like it's, you know, it's not a really high quality signal on our side. But when you've looked through also hundreds of samples and you still don't get a, a, a peak that's hitting NIST, it's less likely to be on the signal collection side. It's got to be a little bit more on the database side and finding a quality match. Um, some of it is that the, the NIST database, as big as it is, it's still not really well populated with good representative mass spectra. Um, so just being able to expand NIST um, and or whatever, whoever wants to to take this on, but some good databases to be able to ma match the mass spectra that we're getting. And we do put a quality filter on there. We don't want to take hits. We don't want to put names on things if they don't have at least a 600 match score out of 1,000 to the NIST database. But still, even with a criteria that low, we have a lot, a lot of unnamed peaks in our chromatograms. And that's really frustrating. Yeah, when you have this wide set of getting standards for, you know, thousands or tens of thousands, that's, that's, uh, yeah, we don't know, do a lot it. Of things, we don't know what they are, really. So that's, that's, it's, yeah. it's an unbelievable challenge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, our approach is, uh, because we don't know what most of these things are, we have to go, we have to first figure out which of these 800 peaks that we're seeing, which ones should we care about most? So we'll figure out, okay, which of these might be 
potentially be biomarkers. They have some predictive value to them. And so we narrow it down to 20 that we're going to focus on out of the 800 plus and then start to do the nitty gritty work of seeing if we can come up with a name for that compound so that we can get a standard and make sure that that's what that thing is. Um, so not even having a mass spectral hit to start with, that's, that becomes a lot of work. Oh. There's more to do, turns out. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, one of the one of the questions I'm starting to ask a lot of people, both uh, sort of around me professionally, but but in other places too, is what what are you doing with AI now? Um, it's uh, in my email every day. There's something new, and um, just really interested to know sort of what people are doing. You you mentioned it briefly before. Um, so sort of two two ways. Uh, is it sort of coming into your your research? Uh, in any way, and also just in terms of your, you know, day-to-day -day work as a professor and a teacher, any any impacts there? Really curious. Yeah. So um, I am always a Luddite. I'm always the last to adopt any new technology amongst any of my peer groups. One of my sisters is often embarrassed by what phone I'm carrying around and will just donate to me her old phone whenever she gets a new one. Um, so I have not, I've used machine, we use machine learning, but that is different than artificial intelligence. Um, and we have not applied AI models to our data sets yet. Um, I'm a little circumspect about putting our data into certainly any of these free subscription free uh, models because we need to protect our data and as soon as we put it in if it if we're not controlling it um, it becomes out you know it goes out into the public and it can show up anywhere um, so for right now for my research group, my policy is that they don't put anything unpublished onto an AI. Chat GPT is off limits. Um, we're not using it to um, analyze our data yet. I'm not against the idea of applying it so long as I have 100% control over that data until uh, you know we we have fully understood it. So I, I haven't applied it yet in um, in my research life, with the exception of a colleague. We were we were writing a grant proposal, and for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, you have to have a lay abstract in addition to a scientific mm -hmm. abstract. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it. I I took the scientific abstract. I wrote the lay abstract. And then my colleague said, this still might be a little jargony. And she put it through um, Grammarly. Hmm. And it did a beautiful job of taking the science jargon out of that abstract and, and making it more of a true lay abstract rather than a scientist's version of a lay abstract. Um, so that was interesting. These big emails have come out that kind of tie your two ideas together, both from NSF and NIH, that say, if you are a grant reviewer, you cannot use this you as a grant writer use whatever you want but as a grant reviewer do not use these tools because yeah once they go in who knows where they're at and it kind of gets right. to, the, to the point of this, this privacy thing so no yeah you're on all points yeah yeah um and then it, teaching wise 
for um I haven't had issues with it yet as far as I'm aware um, so the the class that I teach in the fall semesters it is an upper division laboratory course and the students are on a little bit more self-directed projects that they, they aren't on um, cookbook style experiments that have a predicted outcome and so I know that they have to analyze their own data and write a, a, a paper that isn't going to be just a reiteration of something that exists in, in the ethos um, somewhere. So I have no problems with students using something like Grammarly to fix their grammar. I mean, yes, please, like, <laughs> please have it checked for syntax and grammar and, and you know, make it as readable as possible. Um, I haven't seen any, any evidence yet that they are using it to try to author those lab reports and pass it off as their own that I've noticed. Um, so, but you know, it's something that definitely the, I know other instructors are grappling with. If they have set essays on specific topics, that seems to be a little bit more challenging to deal with. And some professors are moving away from the take-home exam to back to sitting there and writing it, your essay in class as you, during the final exam period, just to try to combat against that to some degree. Yeah, yeah, super interesting times for sure. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap up the main discussion part of the interview here and close with some uh, quicker, lighter questions. Before I do that, though, I want to highlight the upcoming multidimensional chromatography workshop, since we've been talking about it a lot today, which will be held January 10 through 12 at California State University in Los Angeles this year. Yes, that uh, is the the meeting of the the gas chromatography yeah. with the capillary the yeah. liquid chromatography. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So for listeners that aren't familiar with the workshop, registration is free, which is unusual, and we have a great lineup of speakers who will talk about the research in multidimensional separations. I think I saw an abstract for a poster from Trenton Davis. Is he still working with you? Oh yeah, Trent. Yes, yeah, he is. Okay. It, yeah, Trenton Davis and Emily Higgins Kepler and a couple mm -hmm. of my other folks will also be there. Yeah. Okay, super. Um, so uh, again, the meeting is uh, covers both gas and liquid phase work, and we'll put a, also put a link in it uh, to the workshop in the show notes. Uh, and you can for find out more at the website if uh, for for listeners who are unfamiliar with the meeting. Um, so. Quick, uh, quick things here to close. Uh, first, first question is the best, or I guess first statement, best analytical advice ever given to me was? That was uh, that if you want to know if a compound is in your sample, you have to do a co-injection. There is no, <laughs> no substitute for a co-injection um, just to make sure that what you think is in there is actually the, the compound of interest. Okay, great. And uh, the second one is, if you could wave a magic wand and solve any one key problem in your work, it would be? Oh, those those databases. I, I, I want all the data at my fingertips to be able to figure out what in the world is in all my, my peak tables and my samples. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm saying a lot to my students these days, people are hungry for data and they, they kind of laugh at me and think it's funny, but it's so true. And this is another completely different from, from what I'm usually talking about. It's, it's absolutely more evidence of that. All right, so we're going to wrap it up there then. Thanks first to Jim Gunius again for joining me as co-host on the pod today. It's really been a lot of fun again. And, and finally, thanks to Heather for joining us and sharing your insights about some of your recent work. Uh, very, very interesting, as well as a variety of topics and, and trends we see in the analytical space. Yes, thanks, Dwight, for having Thanks again, Heather, for the conversation. It was really great. Thanks for having me, you guys.